hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a disease of the heart, which is often called the hard-hearted disease, or the hardened heart disease. This hardened heart disease is where the heart muscle becomes thickened, and the thickened muscle can make it hard for the heart to pump blood and can be fatal if not treated. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is most often inherited and is one of the most common forms of heart disease in our world today. It's a medical condition that affects many, many people in our world today. Yet there is a spiritual heart condition that affects all of us because we are all born with a heart that is full of sin, a hardened heart. And because of our sin, we are born with that callous, hardened heart that if left alone would be fatal. In fact, it would be worse than just physical death. We're born with the need of having our callous, hardened hearts removed and given a new heart, a heart of having faith and trust in Christ alone. As we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, I would ask you to please open up your Bibles with me. Uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. This is found on page 996 in the church Bibles. And it's in this passage that we will see Jesus, who is the cure for our callous hearts. Again, Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 1 through verse 6, found on page 996 in the church Bibles, and I would ask that you would please follow along as I read. This is God's holy, infallible, life-giving, and life-transforming word. He, being Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with, whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. The Lord bless the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Would you please pray with me? <clears throat> Father God, we do come before you this morning, recognizing that you are the one true God. We pray, Lord, that nothing would distract us from you this morning, from your spirit teaching us this morning. We pray, Lord, you'd help me to preach according to your word and your strength. We pray, Lord, that we would receive it, that we would listen, that we would obey, that you would be given glory, that you would help us be made further into the image of Christ. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we begin to look at God's word this morning, we will need to see the context of what is going on. We've been looking at Mark. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, it says that Jesus was in Capernaum, and he had entered the synagogue and began to teach, followed by healing people and casting out uh, demons. 
And in verse 39, it says that Jesus also went into various synagogues throughout Galilee, preaching and also casting out demons, healings. And we see that Jesus began calling his disciples as well. And he called uh, Levi, who's known as Matthew, the tax collector. Last Sunday, Pastor Mike preached um, from verses 23 to 28, where Jesus was accused of doing something unlawful on the Sabbath. And now, starting in verse, uh, chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 1, we see that Jesus had once again entered a synagogue on the Sabbath, and the reaction to the presence of Jesus had, had stirred up quite a commotion. When the people in general heard him teach, it says that they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as, as one having authority and not as the scribes. In chapter 1, verse 27, it says that they were all amazed, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. He was showing that he had authority over sickness as he healed many people with various ailments. He showed his authority, and it became an issue with these other so-called authorities, these religious authorities. It was those Pharisees, as well as scribes who were there, who were self-declared religious authorities. The, the scribes were mentioned as being there along with the Pharisees in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke. So you're not going to see this word scribe in our passage, but if you look again at the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, they are there as well. And it was these Pharisees and scribes who were having a problem with Jesus because he was usurping their authority. The, the scribes were not always problematic in, in the time, especially in the Old Testament. In fact, Ezra was a godly scribe in the Old Testament, and he was one of the scribes that had a very important job of transcribing the law. That's where they get the name from, scribes. They were transcribing the law, and it said these scribes took their uh, job of preserving the scriptures very seriously. They would copy and recopy the Bible meticulously. They would count the letters and spaces to make sure each copy was correct. And we are so thankful to God for allowing these Jewish scribes to preserve the Old Testament portions of our Bibles for us. And as we get into the New Testament, we see that these scribes uh, began to be associated with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were those, the religious sect of Judaism. They were considered experts in the law and keeping the law, but they, they held onto oral traditions as well and, and, and thought that they were as equal to God's word. And so that became a problem. And it says that they were widely respected by the community because of their knowledge and their dedication and their outward appearance of law-keeping. They looked like the religious leaders. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they went beyond interpretation and application of the scripture, however, and they added to these law and many man-made rules and traditions in addition to what God's law said. And they became professionals at spelling out the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit behind it. And these things became so bad that the regulations and traditions the scribes added to the law were considered even more important than the law itself. Jesus was not following their man-made laws and rules, and therefore they believed that he was challenging their authority as the religious leaders of the day. 
These Pharisees did not like having their authority challenged. And they were looking for a way to accuse, challenge, and condemn Jesus. They, they had already condemned Jesus of eating and drinking with tax collectors earlier in Mark and from doing something or accusing him of doing something unlawful on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, and Jesus declared that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, showing his authority again. Jesus was declaring that he was the authority of the Sabbath because he was the author of the Sabbath. It was his idea. It was God's idea. And so we see in our passage that the Pharisees and scribes had a condemning heart. In verse 2, we see that the Pharisees had a condemning heart because they were, they were looking for a way to accuse Jesus of breaking their religious rules. That Greek word that is used there is what the Pharisees were doing was, was trying to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. They were trying to bring up charges, having, them tr having him tried and condemned before a judge. That was their goal. And we know, if we've read our Bible, that Jesus was falsely accused. He was falsely tried and condemned to die on a cross for us. However, we ourselves, along with the Pharisees and Sadducees, stand condemned because of our own sin. Only Jesus was sinless. We are all sinners, and we all are standing condemned as lawbreakers before God, and we deserve eternal torment and punishment in a very real place called hell. Yet we do not have to stand condemned. If we have faith and trust in Christ alone for his perfect obedience, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, then we no longer stand condemned. We may still continue to be accused by Satan, but we do not stand condemned if we have faith and trust in Christ alone to forgive us of our sins and to give us his righteousness. In his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan described a battle between the accuser, Apollyon, and Christian in the Valley of Humiliation. And one of Apollyon's ploys was to recite a laundry list of Christian's sins. And Christian's response to the accuser is exactly what is written in God's word in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the, from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ alone to forgive them of their sin. As we continue to look at God's word this morning, we can see that the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones here trying to accuse and condemn Jesus. And sadly, this is what many people, including those who call themselves Christians, are still trying to do today. It was brought up in our 242 uh, growth group Bible study this week that there, has, there is much division in our world, so much division, even in the church around the world. And one set of Christians is accusing another set of Christians based on their political affiliation. Some are saying, if you vote for that person or that political party, then you're not a Christian. Satan is loving this division 
He is loving that we try and condemn one another. He wants us to accuse and condemn each other. He wants us to be divided, yet we are not to condemn one another because of those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. We stand united in Christ because of our identity in Christ, not our identity in any political party or anything else. But these Pharisees and, and these scribes, we would say apparently are not in Christ as they are accusing and condemning Jesus. And Jesus had come into the synagogue on the Sabbath and a man was there whose hand was withered. And we're not told whether the man's hand was withered from a birth defect or the result of an injury or some terrible disease. But it says that this man is there in the synagogue along with Jesus. And, and these Pharisees and scribes were watching to see if Jesus would heal this man with a withered hand. It might seem obvious that this man with a withered hand had a need. Since he had this withered hand, he was unlikely uh, able to work. He was probably there around the synagogue, um, there to beg for food and money to live on. And it, it doesn't appear that he was being helped by the scribes and Pharisees. They were there. They were there. They were supposed to be the religious leaders of the time. They should have been the one to help him. They were just looking for another opportunity to accuse and condemned Jesus for breaking one of their man-made rules. And Jesus fell right into their trap. Or did he? No. Jesus saw this, this man in need and told him to get up and come forward. And then we see that Jesus addresses the heart of the Sabbath. Jesus addresses the heart of the Sabbath. Jesus said to them in verse 4, Is it lawful to do good? Or to do harm on the Sabbath. Again, in a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 11, Jesus said, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Well, Jesus knew the condition of their hearts and was trying to get them to answer a very practical question. He said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Jesus was getting to the heart of the Sabbath. Last week, Pastor Mike rightly proclaimed that the Hebrew word for Sabbath means to stop, to have rest. The Sabbath was a creation ordinance where our triune God rested on the seventh day after six days of work on creation. I was telling the kids was he tired? No. Did, did God need rest? No, of course not. God did not need to rest. God gave mankind the Sabbath. He gave us Sabbath in part so that we might rest and rely upon him and not ourselves. Not only was the Sabbath a creation ordinance, it was given to Moses and the Israelites in the Ten Commandments. A very simple purpose of the Ten Commandments is for us to love God and to love others. That's what, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love one another as well, right? So the Ten Commandments show us that we also fall short in keeping of God's law, and that we need 
Jesus. We need Jesus who alone perfectly obeyed the law for us. This doesn't mean that we can just stop obeying the Ten Commandments or any other laws that God has for us. God still tells us, you shall have no other gods before me. He still tells us, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. He still, still tells us, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. God never said that we can just pick and choose whatever one of these commands that we want to obey. This includes that command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Looking at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 9, we see that God continued and said not only to remember it and keep it holy, but he said, Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. This, this includes, and he went and included things, but includes you and your family members and your servants. And God even said, your cattle wasn't supposed to work. No, and, and the sojourner who was with you. God did not tell us that we must obey the commands in order for us to be right with God. Jesus is the one who did that for us. Yet we are still commanded to obey God and to keep his word, showing him that we love him. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. There's another passage about the Sabbath in Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. And God says in this passage, if you, because of, if, <clears throat> sorry, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from keeping your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. <clears throat> And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's in this passage that God is telling us to call the Sabbath a delight. Is it a delight to you? It's not to be a burden. Oh, we have to get up early and get dressed. It's raining. Now, God set aside this day for us to rest and depend and trust in him. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Pharisees and the scribes were making people's burdens heavy. They were adding to these man-made rules, these burdensome rules in an attempt to look good on the outside. Look at me, I'm, I'm keeping all of those rules. As Jesus explains the heart of the Sabbath, he rhetorically asks again, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? You can just see these guys like, I can't believe he said that. 
So Jesus is not only saying that we're supposed to be resting from our work on the Sabbath, but we are to be doing good. As I mentioned earlier in the passage, the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asks, What man is there among you who has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? As we look at our, back at our passage in chapter, uh, verse 4, Jesus asks, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to, to save life or to kill it? But they kept silent. They couldn't say anything. And the reason that they kept silent was because of the condition of their heart. They had a callous heart. The reason for their silence was because of their sinful and callous hearts. As I briefly mentioned earlier, we should not be surprised by these scribes and Pharisees as having sinful and callous hearts hardened hearts. It's because every one of us is born with that sinful, callous heart. It's a spiritual heart condition that Jesus alone is able to cure. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24, where God was speaking to the Israelites, and he said, for I will take you from the nations, and I'll gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will Cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. And this is, this is a prophecy of what Jesus came to do for us. He came to remove our callous, hardened heart and to give us a new heart by faith in him. As we look in our passage in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, we see how Jesus feels about sinful, callous hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees. It says that Jesus looked around at them in anger because of their hardened, callous heart. Jesus had a righteous and justifiable anger. He did not sin in his anger like we do. These, these scribes and these Pharisees not only were born with a callous heart, but they, they continued to harden their hearts with their ongoing sin. Proverbs 28 verse 14 says, Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The consequences of their sinfully callous hearts is that they will be judged and condemned by Jesus, and they will suffer for all eternity. Jesus was angry because they were choosing to harden their hearts by their ongoing sin, and they refused to be healed by Jesus. And yet, as we may be pointing our fingers at these sinfully proud scribes and Pharisees, we see that even the disciples of Jesus were prone to harden their hearts as well, and so are we. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, after Jesus had, had just fed the 5,000 and, and they moved on and Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And then the disciples, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. He goes, oh, Jesus wants bread again. <laughs> and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you, do you not see or understand? 
Do you have a hardened heart? Do you have eyes and you do not see, and having ears you do not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of pieces did you have afterwards and picked up? And the disciples of Jesus, they had hardened hearts due to their lack of faith and not remembering what Jesus had done for them. That is what we have when we forget what Jesus has done for us. When we lack faith, we begin to harden our hearts. We harden our hearts when we, when we harbor unconfessed sin in our hearts. We need to know that the Lord knows the condition of our hearts already. And yet he calls us to confess our sins, the sins of our callous hearts, knowing that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Our passage shows that Jesus is not only angry at the sinful, callous hearts, but he's also grieved. He's also grieved. God has always grieved over the sins of mankind. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, it says that, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts in his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Our triune God was not only grieved, but then he continues to grieve them, but he continues to be grieved whenever any one of us sins. It truly saddens the heart when we sin against our Lord. And as Jesus was grieving over their sins, he was showing them that he has a compassionate heart. Jesus not only reveals that he has an angry heart over their sin, but he has a compassionate heart at the same time. His compassionate heart is revealed by what he says and what he does. His compassionate heart is first seen by Jesus and his willingness to, to speak and interact with this man with a shriveled hand. Everyone else was ignoring this man with the shriveled hand. In the eyes of the religious leaders of the day, this man with the shriveled hand, he was most likely not welcome. In fact, they may have tried to say to him, well, you have a shriveled hand because of your sin in your life, like they tried to do with the, the man who was born blind. But Jesus, having a compassionate heart, spoke to him, and showed him what having a compassionate heart looks like. Jesus welcomed this man with a shriveled hand, something that the religious leaders were not willing to do. Jesus would show everyone there that doing good is what a person is supposed to be doing on the Sabbath. And we see that Jesus spoke to the man with a shriveled hand, and, and he said to him, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand. He trusted in Jesus. He stretched out his hand, and his hand was fully restored. And you might think the next thing that we would read would be that everyone, including the Pharisees, rejoiced over Jesus and his compassion and healing this man. But no, it's quite the opposite. It says in verse 6 that the, the Pharisees, they went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus as how they might destroy him. Again, they did not like seeing 
than break one of their man-made rules. He did work by healing this man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, and now we see the Herodians, uh, were being threatened by the popularity of Jesus. And this is the, the first time that Herodians are mentioned in the Bible. And according to commentators, at the time of Jesus, there were all kinds of groups, the Pharisees, which we've already mentioned, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and they all held positions of authority and power over people. And they were, there were other groups like the Sanhedrin and the scribes and lawyers. And each of these groups held power in either religious or political matters. The Herodians held political power. And most scholars believe that they held, were a political party that supported King Herod Antipas, uh, the Roman emperor ruler over much of the land of the Jews. So you can see how they might have seen Jesus as a threat. You know, if there were polls taken back then, they would have seen that Jesus was gaining in popularity. And he was going to be showing that he had authority that was much different than, than those scribes and those Pharisees. And the Herodians were perhaps feeling threatened that this Jesus would somehow overthrow them and usurp their authority and their political power. They believed that their, the people's lives and, and the jobs and money were on the line. And even though the Pharisees and Herodians, they didn't agree on everything, what they were agreeing on that day was to try and eliminate this threat of the person of Jesus. And they began conspiring how they might destroy him. But Jesus knew that he could never be destroyed by them and would continue his plan and his purpose to cure for a cure for the heart. Jesus came to offer a cure for the heart, a cure for our sinful, callous heart. And what Jesus did in the synagogue on the Sabbath day was a sign pointing to what Jesus will do for others as well. When Jesus told the man to stretch out his shriveled hand, Jesus restored his hand and made it whole. The man did nothing other than recognizing that he could do nothing to heal himself. The man had faith, though. He had some type of faith to trust that Jesus was willing and able to restore his shriveled hand. If he didn't do that, it wouldn't happen. And as we look to Jesus, we're able to see that he alone is able to cure our sinful, callous hearts. Jesus alone lived a pure and sinless life. Only Jesus was able to offer himself as a sacrifice to die on the cross for our sins. The Pharisees and Herodians may have thought that they had destroyed Jesus when they falsely accused and condemned and crucified him. But Jesus showed that he had power over sin and death and Satan by rising from the dead on that third day. It is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can be cured of our sinful, callous hearts by giving us a new heart and a new life. And as Jesus restored this, this man's withered hand, it was a picture to when God promises that he will restore everything one day. Right now, because of the sin in our world, we continue to see sin abound more and more. There, there are the effects of sin with sickness and hatred and war and death and more. 
But as believers in Christ, we can know that he promises to make all things new and to restore things to better than Eden. We know that it's going to be better than Eden because when God makes all things new, there will not even be a possibility of sin. In Eden, there was that possibility. The picture of the restoration of all things in Revelation chapter 21, where, where we see John saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and he will be their people, and God himself will be among them. And what will he do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Because all the first things will have all passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these things down, for these things are faithful and true. This is a promise to us. So we can praise the Lord that he is making all things new. And he is restoring things to even better than Eden. And so as we think about this passage and think about how we can apply these things from God's word today. It should cause us to examine our own hearts. Let our prayer be like that of King David in Psalm 139, who said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way, any sinful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, God already knows our hearts, yet we need to examine our hearts. We need to recognize our sinful condemning and callous hearts. We need to confess and repent of our sins, knowing that Jesus is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to purify us of all our unrighteousness. We need to have faith in Jesus to cure us of our sinful, callous hearts. We need to trust him to remove that heart of stone within us and to give us a new heart and a new life. A life to love God and to love others. We should be thankful to God that he has given to us the Sabbath day, not as a list of another rule, not as a burden, but a day to worship the Lord, to rest in him, to trust in him, and to serve our God and do good to others and not harm. May we continue to do this until he returns or takes us home. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus loves us so much, that he cares about our callous heart, and that he is grieved over our sin, yet he has a cure for our hardened heart, that he might come into this world, that he came, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he offers to us eternal life and to restore us and give us new life. Lord, help us to look to you and to trust in you, for it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.